Hi, and welcome to Listen Up A-Holes, the only Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast that appreciates the finer things, but does not want to know what's happened on the finer things. I'm Joshua Unruh, superhero scholar from Pulp Diction Productions. And I'm story expert Lonnie Diane Rich of Chipperish Media. Together, we are working our way through the good, the bad, and the ugly of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So listen up, A-Holes. We're going to talk a little more about Agent Carter. All right, Lonnie, we're probably going to have a lot shorter comic book history on this episode because I covered all of the big bonkersiest stuff on the last one. Yes. Mm-hmm. But we do have a few things that I thought were pretty interesting. For one thing, I should mention the Howling Commandos are in this half of the season. Mm-hmm. But I'm not really going to talk very much about them because I talked a lot about them in our Captain America the First Avenger episode. So I'm going to mention that they exist. <laughs> That episode also exists, and you should go listen to that if you haven't to hear all of your howling commando goodness. Mm-hmm. But really, anything else I said would just be rehashing that stuff. And, you know, as much as I loved seeing them in this, they were a much bigger part of the first Avenger. So, yeah. mm-hmm. however, this does seem like the moment for us to discuss some hodgepodge combination of red rooms. Black Widows, and Dottie Underwood. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that is amazing. The first time I saw Agent Carter, it opened up my understanding of Black Widow just from watching that episode, you know, and, and seeing like, yeah. who Dottie was. And yes. so I'm fascinated by this whole thing. Well, in the MCU, Red Room graduates do not have official titles. They are okay. not uniformly Black Widows. Mm-hmm. But they are all women, highly trained in all manners of infiltration and assassination, and also ballet. Okay. <laughs> well, it's important to be well-rounded. Well, it, it keeps coming up as part mm-hmm. of their training, and then it's mm-hmm. convenient covers Oh, sure. at other times. Sure. Now, I will say, that is a comic book reference, because initially, Natalia Romanoff, a.k.a. Natasha Romanoff, the Black Widow, mm-hmm. was undercover as a ballet dancer and she had memories i say that because they were retconned to be false memories but she had memories of being part of other ballet companies Mm -hmm. and she was an accomplished ballerina and that has folded over into the mcu Dottie is in america as a ballet dancer and i Mm -hmm. i believe in age of ultron when you get flashbacks to natasha in the red room she is training in ballet amongst other things so Mm -hmm. it's a joke but not. <laughs> well, no, but I mean, ballet dancers are strong. You know, I mean, that is some serious acrobatic training. And when you see Dottie move, she does have like a oh, dancer's true. kind of liveness to her. Yeah, I can see yeah. that. Mm-hmm. No, that makes a, that, You've just made it make even more sense. <laughs> I think it was really just Russians in the 60s were all ballet dancers if they got to come to America. So right. that's what Natasha was. But. Look at that. You uh-huh. made it work. There you go. Yeah. Now, our first Red Room graduate that we are introduced to chronologically mm-hmm. is Dottie Underwood. Yes. Although that is clearly not her real name because it's not Russian enough. Right. Mm-hmm. In the comics, it's a little more complicated. Okay. I know you're shocked. I know. <laughs> what a surprise. 
The Red Room was home to the infamous Black Widow Ops program, Mm -hmm. which also, much like the MCU, turned young orphan girls into highly trained killer spies and ballerinas. (laughs) And like I mentioned in Iron Man 2, this program also enhanced their operatives to near superhuman levels of physical agility and durability with the added bonus of slowing their aging. Because for some reason, Black Widow is the only one who isn't subject to the sliding scale of the Marvel Universe. Uh-huh. She still has been a KGB operative and was a tiny baby person who hung out with Captain America and Wolverine in World War II and stuff like that. Wow. Yeah, there's there's no... Yeah, so they just decided along the way that the uh, Red Room added that little chemical cocktail. Okay, so that is like a, you know, like a chemical thing that is an alteration... It's not just that ballet extends their lifespan that much, no, right? No. That is chemically altered, right? No, they okay. have been fundamentally altered. Okay, okay. So yes. they're, they're superheroes, you know. Yeah, when they there's a big deal in superhero comics about superhuman versus peak human and things like that. And, yeah. And in the comic books, actually, Captain America is peak human. That's his mm-hmm. deal. He is just shy of superhuman. What does mm-hmm. that mean? I don't know. <laughs> they just make this distinction for him. Right. And so because of him, it kind of became a big conversation. And with Black Widow, she's not super strong. Like she does. She is not. um you know, as strong as Captain America, but she is incredibly agile and she just, you know, doesn't get older. So okay. mm-hmm. um, now, again, that is all accident and was retconned along the way that it became a chemical cocktail. So right. why she kept not getting slid along the time scale, I don't know. I blame Glasnost. OK. All so right. <laughs> now from this program. Would graduate the most well-known, but by no means only Black Widow, Natasha Romanoff. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, that's easy enough to know from the movies, but there have been several other people involved in the Marvel 616 Red Room that I find fascinating. Yeah. One of the instructors at the Red Room, and one with whom a younger Natasha had a romantic entanglement, none other than James Buchanan Barnes. (gasps) Bucky? The Winter Soldier himself. (sighs) Now, remember, I have mentioned a little bit when we talked about Leviathan that they are much more like a part of the Eastern Bloc, like communist Russia. Mm-hmm. And because of that, that's where the Winter Soldier comes from He in the comics. He comes right. out of Leviathan, not Hydra. So mm-hmm. uh, it makes more sense for the MCU for that to just get kind of him to get folded into Hydra. It keeps it on point for Captain America and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. I'm not complaining. Just that's that's part of the deal. And because of that. Because he was very good at what he did, every now and then they thaw him out to be an instructor at the Red Room. And, of course, he met Natasha, and she's ravishing mm-hmm. and et cetera, you okay. know. So all right. They picked that back up while he was briefly Captain America. I'll say no more. Okay. Now, there have been men other than him associated with the Red Room as operatives. Mm-hmm. But only two. And only one actually graduated from... The Red Room from the Black Widow Ops program. Okay. His name is Nico Constantine, and he's codenamed the Wolf Spider. Ooh. <laughs> he turned out to be so difficult to control that the Red Room considered him and all the male Black Widows experiment to be basically an utter failure. <laughs> <laughs> 
never made another one, imprisoned him in a gulag where he predictably came to run the place because sure. he's pretty highly trained at that kind of thing. Right. <laughs> now, the other man who has worked for the Red Room is not himself a graduate. He's actually a purchased asset. Okay. The Soviet Union created a super soldier by taking a mutant with a death factor okay. and building into him a set of nigh unbreakable tentacles. What is a death factor? What does that mean? So he's very much set up to be kind of an opposite number to Wolverine who has a healing factor. Okay. And so this guy's death factor is like spores out in that he just puts off just by being there that make you sick and die. Okay. And in the process, it heals him up. And he can also focus it through his nigh unbreakable tentacles. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, they called him Omega Red. Uh, well, of course, naturally. Of course. Right. <laughs> and since he had both weapons implanted in his body that were made of a nearly unbreakable metal and a power directly opposed to a fan favorite X-Man, he and Wolverine obviously get along like gangbusters. Sure. Like right. they're just best friends. <laughs> they're not. <laughs> So are they are they like, you know, is is this guy Wolverine's like main, you know, like the nemesis, like the arch nemesis, the big one? Oh, good Lord. No. OK. <laughs> that would be Sabretooth, who is even more like Wolverine. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's quite a thing. And uh, if you want to know more about that, I recommend you don't watch Wolverine Origins because it will make you want to put a white hot knitting needle in your eye. <laughs> All right. I will definitely avoid that, then. It's not great. It's okay. not great. <laughs> now, the most recent and, for my money, most interesting graduate from the Red Room to make a name for herself is Nadia Van Dyne, a.k.a. the Unstoppable Wasp. Oh, yeah. Now, she is the daughter of Hank Pym, also uh -huh. known as Ant-Man. Uh-huh. Wait, I thought the Wasp was Ant-Man's girlfriend. Well, am I confused? <laughs> you're correct. So, oh, comic book wise, okay. comic book wise, yeah. Hank Pym has been the main Ant-Man mm -hmm. for most of comic book history. We'll talk more about this when we get to Ant-Man. Scott Lang is part of that mythos, but Hank Pym is really the guy. OK, uh, he's the one who invented the Pym particles, which are what allow someone to shrink and grow. He invented a lot of the technology that that kept him alive at different mm -hmm. sizes, let him control ants. You know, all the stuff we'll see in the movie. OK, OK. So he did have a girlfriend turned wife named Janet Van Dyne, who was the original wasp in the mm -hmm. comics. But Nadia is actually Hank's daughter with his first and much less known wife, who mm -hmm. was supposedly captured and murdered by foreign agents. OK. While pregnant. Ooh. So Nadia is basically born into the Red Room. All right. Okay. Now, her talents take after her scientific genius father. Mm -hmm. So she did receive a lot of the same kind of assassin training. But once she graduates, she's kind of put off into the science division of the mm -hmm. Red Room. Mm-hmm. Eventually, she comes into possession of some actual pin particles. And because she's very clever... She uses them to escape. All right. So did she know that she was his daughter? I'm a little fuzzy on that because I have not read that those very okay. earliest appearances of mm -hmm. her. I think that she has always been aware that she was Hank Pym's daughter. They probably, mm -hmm. you know, use that to be like, this is why you're so clever. You yeah. know, mm -hmm. 
Now, unfortunately, when she escaped, this was all when Hank was missing or dead or maybe fused with an Ultron. I'm not really sure because that ties into that time when Captain America was a Nazi and I don't give a damn. So, you know, Mm -hmm. I don't know. But this means Nadia didn't get to meet her dad. Okay. She did, however, get to meet Janet Van Dyne, a.k.a. the Winsome Wasp. Mm -hmm. Now, when Nadia became a citizen, she actually chose to take Janet's surname. Okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. Because she never knew Hank and Mm -hmm. Janet had very much been there for her, like since she made it to America. So she did use her father's equipment to cobble together a new wasp outfit. Mm -hmm. And when she discovered that S.H.I.E.L.D. keeps a list of the smartest people in the world and that other than the very recent edition of Moon Girl at number one, Mm -hmm. the first woman on the list is at 27. She got a little annoyed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She proceeded to basically say, hell nah, and start (laughs) Girl, the genius in action research labs. All right. (laughs) She's since gathered a bunch of girl geniuses to change the world. And that's all I'm saying, because that stuff is very new and you should totally read it right now. It is a hoot. (laughs) Well, that sounds fun. Yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. It's uh, because they call it the unstoppable wasp. It's it's got um, a certain amount of its attitude in a way, I think, to owe to like the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, because. Mm You have this person who was in a very tight, controlled situation who comes out and is nevertheless just joyful and optimistic and just, I'm just going to be the best me I can be, you know. (laughs) And it just so happens that that involves shrinking down very small, shooting bad guys with lasers and recruiting Uh girl geniuses to change the world. Well, awesome. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. I really do recommend that, uh, not just to our listeners, but actually to you. I think you would... You would enjoy that one. All right. All right. I'll check it out. Moving on, we have Johan Fenhoff. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I damn near missed this one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is the Leviathan mastermind that's called Ivchenko for most of his screen time. Yes. They mm-hmm. say his real name, Johan Fenhoff, like one time right. in passing in the SSR. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And that's why I almost missed it, because they say it once, and that's the real name of a supervillain called Dr. Faustus. Right. Mm -hmm. Now, Faustus calls himself the master of the mind, and while he's not technically into hypnotism, he is pretty serious about the psychological manipulation (laughs) and reprogramming of your mind by Mm -hmm. making you think the world is very different than it is. Mm -hmm. He hires actors that look like people that are important to you. He uses drugs and lights and his own naturally hypnotic voice to implant ideas in your mind over the course of a long span of time. It's Mm -hmm. not quite the wave a wand magic that it is in the show. Right, right, right. Focus on my voice as I touch my wedding ring and and I gotcha. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a lot more involved than that in the comics for Dr. Faustus. But I'm mm-hmm. going to tell you, that guy is kind of a mid-level at best Captain America villain. And I haven't yeah. always read all the Captain America comics. <laughs> and I, if, if they had said Dr. Faustus, I would have been all over it. Right. But you just don't hear his name very often. So that was a close one. I was When I s- snagged onto that one, I was like, Oh, my God, I damn near lost that Easter egg right. contest right away because uh, she's going to Google everything. <laughs> well, I did find one thing, but only I'm excited because, to hear it, but only because I was Googling and somebody told me. Well, I, <laughs> I think that's fair. And we'll talk about the the evolving rules of our Easter oh, egg the contest. Easter egg hunt, right. 
Why have I not been calling it an Easter egg hunt all this time? I don't know what's wrong with me. I don't know. (laughs) At any rate, because we have Dr. Faustus, whose actual superpower is hypnosis, I am going to use this as an excuse to talk about super hypnosis. Okay, yes. Now, this is a concept that dates all the way back to radio and pulp era. Because mm-hmm. you have radio show mystery man, The Shadow, you know, the guy who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. He's able to cloud men's minds so as to walk among them without their noticing. Mm-hmm. He kind of makes them like mentally invisible. They just don't see him even though he's there. Yeah. And it's mostly an excuse for him to be in places where he can overhear the information that people are having a conversation about. Right. You know, it's a, it's a handy radio tool. Sure, sure. But I mean, it's it. They bill it right away as cloud men's mind, you know, mm-hmm. secrets of the East kind of thing. So it dates way back. You yeah. Know? Mm-hmm. Superhero comics jump on this train as early as 1939 in a Batman story called The Mad Monk. Mm-hmm. And while there are a lot of incidental mesmerists running around both of the big two, DC really only has a couple relatively big name hypnotist characters. Mm-hmm. But this is a thing that Marvel goes for hard. Okay. They have several. Now, we've mentioned Dr. Faustus, but I'm going to zero in on my personal favorite, the Ringmaster. Okay. The Ringmaster has a portable mind control device in his top hat (laughs) that aids his natural abilities as a hypnotist. Okay. The hat allows him to hypnotize entire crowds. Okay. If you can see him from the front, you're caught. Mm -hmm. He later had similar devices surgically grafted onto his eye so he could work his tricks on individuals without the hassle of the larger device. Oh, well, sure. Sure. Yeah, you got to You got to go minimal. Well, he's got options then, right? Right. Exactly. Now, with a name like Ringmaster, you might imagine that he has a gimmick. (laughs) Right. You would be right because he is a proper super criminal, Lonnie. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. The Ringmaster. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. Is the leader of a circus of crime. Oh, God. <laughs> Let it sink in. It's a circus devoted to crimes. Oh, my God. That's there is a strong brilliant. man. Oh, no. A fat lady. Oh, God. A human cannonball, a snake charmer, a lion tamer, acrobats, and a clown assassin. <laughs> It's burglary (laughs) under the big top. It's the greatest swindle on earth. Please direct your attention to the vice in the center ring. It's felonies for all ages. (laughs) All right, I have to ask you, that last bit that you did, did you come up with that? Or is that part of their whole thing? No, that's very nice. That's very good. I like that. I like that a lot. Oh, my God, that's insane. I know. I love the idea. They're not the only circus of crime, by the way. Uh Uh-huh. Well, I should say they are the only like specifically this is our gimmick. We are very much the circus of crime and they have this kind of cast of dozens. Uh But you have super criminal jugglers in the Marvel Universe. (laughs) And fairly recently, as these things go, you have a circus of crime that shows up in Batman and Robin that is freaking terrifying. Wow. So. These guys are actually kind of fun. You know, they're going to attack you with the snake that they charm and the lion that they've tamed and assassin clowns. Wow. The yeah, the Circus of the Strange is a bunch of friggin weirdos, as is only right in Gotham City. No, I think that that sounds completely appropriate. <laughs> wow. So that is some very serious mind control they got going on there. 
Well, only with the ringmaster. Yeah. So like that's that's his deal. He he is the mastermind of this crew of criminals and mm-hmm. he hypnotizes crowds and when they need to like rob a place, they've got acrobats and mm-hmm. when they need to fight garishly costumed do-gooders, they've got strong men and human cannonballs and Wow. You know, <laughs> that kind of thing. Well, very cool. For those of you who think I talked about super hypnosis just so I could talk about the circus of crime, guilty as charged. I regret nothing. (laughs) Well, you know what? I completely respect that decision, and I'm glad that you did, because that's awesome. I knew you'd enjoy it. (laughs) (laughs) I love the insane comic book stuff. I just, I, I, that is honestly my favorite part of the show. I don't even read your notes because I just want it all to be a surprise when we sit down to record. And that did not disappoint. Well, I, I hope I have an excuse to talk about the group of super criminals that are jugglers. Oh, yeah. We're going to have to figure that out. There's going to have to be something. I don't care how tenuous the relationship is to one of the MCU things that we do. You must, must bring up the jugglers at some point. My fingers are crossed. All right. Find a way to connect those. Okay. So as you had with the comic book history, uh, you'd covered a lot in the first discussion of Agent Carter. And I covered pretty much the production history in the first uh, discussion of Agent Carter. So what I want to talk a little bit is about the um, the writers and kind of like the, the back behind the scenes creative people. Um we're going to talk a lot uh, in this episode um, about both visibility and invisibility with regard to certain groups um, and how well we, you know, mostly handle, say, sexism and how poorly we handle, say, pretty much everything else, I think, in Agent yeah. Carter. Um, yeah. Or just just how invisible all the other issues are. I mean, I don't think that we're, we're actively damaging um, in, in Agent Carter, but it's just we're, we're really dealing with sexism. And I think that that's good. And I think that they deal with it well, you know, but I, I took a look behind the scenes, you know, at, at who we've got writing and doing the above the line work on, um, on Agent Carter and above the line for people who are unfamiliar with the term. I don't know if I've mentioned it here is uh, all the people who are doing like making the creative decisions, like your directors, your writers and that kind of thing. And they are above the line and below the line. We've got the, the um you know like all the other people on the um on the team who put it together you know the costume designers and blah 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 but the people who make those like real creative decisions are called above the line um so taking a look behind the scenes at that you know um the first thing i want to say before i get into any of this is that this season of television is wonderfully written and nothing that i'm going to kind of note here in any way takes away from the fact that everyone behind the scenes on the show is immensely talented they worked very hard to do what they did and they did a fantastic job so I don't want to take anything away from that but I was looking at all of the episodes and out of all eight of these episodes three of the episodes were written by women uh, Time and Tide was written by Andy Bichelle Ascend to Air was written by Lindsay Allen and Valediction written by Michelle Fazekas and Tara Butters who are also executive producers on Agent Carter and so you know what fair enough it's almost half of the episodes written by women so that's pretty good. You know, that that feels pretty good. For those of you who are unfamiliar, Hollywood is an extremely, extremely white male town, like outrageously white male town. And the thing is, all this behind the scenes stuff, all this above the line stuff, nobody really sees. They see who's in front of the camera, not who's behind it. But I think who's behind it makes for a really interesting conversation as far as what we're actually seeing in our stories that are being told. But one of the other things that I noticed is that every single episode, every single one was directed by a man. 
So here we have Agent Carter, you know, this this like pinnacle of feminism in the 1940s, this story that actually does handle sexism and feminism in a really interesting, nuanced way. You know, it's actually pretty good. Mostly, there is something that happens that we're going to talk about in a little bit that that drives me crazy at the end of this uh, this run of episodes. Um, but you know, and as far as I can tell, you know, though my research is not complete, uh, the majority of the creatives on this show um, and most other shows in Hollywood are, are white men. You know, which is not like uh, there's nothing against white men. I like white. You're a white man, Josh. I like you very much. I think you're awesome. You know, I can also sit down every now and then. Right. <laughs> I mean, and and along with me other white men. Yeah. And and that's, you know, it's just that this is where all of the creative power has been for such a long time. And so it's kind of hard to see that, to see that shift, although things are definitely moving in the right direction. Um, and so this may be why we have some fantastic work being done toward visibility of some groups, like we say women, you know, and we also mm-hmm. have a fantastic disabled character in Susa, right? Um, one of the first characters that you'll see who has some form of disability and yet is still like, you know, uh, he's still a romantic lead potential. He's he's smart. He's capable. Um, I kind of love that his cane has almost become a superpower for him. Mm-hmm. You know, he uses that in the fights. And I think that that's really great. Um, but we don't have a great visibility or even, I think, real consciousness of people of color, how people of color were treated in the 1940s, let alone acknowledging like Jewish characters or LGBTQ, like there's none of that. And I, I get LGBTQ at that point in the 1940s was really kept under the hat. But, you know, I could have done with a gay Jarvis or a gay Howard. Like that would have been okay. We could have done that, you know, that, that confirmed Bachelor storyline. But anyway, um, but that's just, you know, a seed planted. It's something to think about and be conscious of while taking in your favorite stories. You have to think about who is above the line. What are the teams above the line? Who is telling these stories? Um, because sometimes that that really can kind of color the way that you see the world and the things that you accept without question and the things that we are given through our stories to accept without question. Um, So those are kind of like really interesting, just a a couple of interesting things that I noticed when I was looking behind the scenes. So let's go ahead. Let's skip back to the part where I talk about how great the work is in the season of Agent Carter, because it really is. Um, The premiere, Now is Not the End, was written by Marcus and McFeely. Was pretty fantastic, and it set a tone, so good. yeah, and a level for the rest of the the writing for the season, which has just been fantastic. Um, and then, of course, we have the finale, um, Valediction, which was written by Butters and Fazekas, is also outstanding. So we start Truly. and we end on a strong note. In between, we have this incredibly talented roster of writers, um, and I have to say, I don't think that there is a single episode that there, none of these have stood out to me as not being good or not being as good as the others. Like, they're all really fantastic. We have Bridge and Tunnel that was written by Eric Pearson. Time and Tide, as I mentioned, written by Andy Bichelle. The Blitzkrieg Button, written by Brant Engelstein. The Iron Ceiling, written by Jose Molina. Ascend Air, written by Lindsay Allen. And Snafu, written by Chris Dingus. Um, and they're all great. And I have a hard time choosing my favorite. Honestly, I was thinking about this. Like, which one is my favorite and as I go through each one I think oh no that one and then I'm like oh no that one but I think that it it comes down to 
the Blitzkrieg button, which was the last episode we discussed last week, mm-hmm. and the Iron Ceiling, which is the first episode we discussed this week. Um, there's so many incredibly good episodes, but they're so fantastic. There's so much incredible work going on here. And I'm excited to get started talking about it. Yeah, I haven't put as much thought into my favorite episode because it it just hasn't begged it, you know, for Mm -hmm. me. Like, they're so good. And normally, it's very easy to pick my least favorite episode. Yeah. You know, like Mm -hmm. there's usually one weak link. Yeah, there usually is. But I don't see it here. I No, I couldn't find it. I was thinking about it. I was like, well, if I had to rank these episodes, and every time I thought about I would be like, okay, let me look at this one. What happened in this? Oh, no, that was fantastic. And then I think, okay, the next one. There were none of them that I think were bad. The, the, there's one that's different, the Iron Ceiling, because they're off in Russia or Poland, you know, wherever yes. they were. So, I mean, it's different, but I, I like it a lot. I mean, I think it's really fantastic. But that's a testament to the show, right? Like you yeah. have seven episodes that are, I don't want to say the same, but, you know, are set in the same place and yeah. have the same feel. Mm-hmm. And then you have one that has a very different feel that is nevertheless just as high a quality and does not feel jarring. Like yeah. the transition makes sense within the story, both mm-hmm. into and back out of it. Yeah. And things that happen there impact everything else. It wasn't just an excuse to go use a different lot or exactly. something. I mean, it's really, it's a relevant part of the story. It still escalates the overall story structure. And we get that amazing, you know, Red Room experience wandering through that place, you know, and finding that little girl. Like, it's just, it's incredible. So this, I have to say, this whole season of Agent Carter, season one is got almost nigh on perfect. It really is. There are some things that we're going to talk about that are, that are a little bit problematic. But overall, I mean, it's damn good. When we first started rewatching these, mm-hmm. I believe I sent you a text that was like, why isn't everything Agent Carter? Exactly. <laughs> and I kind of stand by it. I you know. know. It's very good. It is incredibly it's... good. So tell me about the structure of that, though. Let's dig into the meat of that goodness. Right. Well, we've got some, I mean, there's there's structure in terms of like the episodes and the way that the episodes go. And the episodes go by, you know, like we've got eight episodes that are part of this big long story. And it's all about the Leviathan, right? And I think that that's actually handled very well. Um, because we've got a bad guy, the bad guy is consistent. Um, it makes sense all the way throughout. Like there are points in the beginning where you don't know what's happening. But if you go back to the end, and once you know everything, and you watch watch it over again it still makes sense and it's, it's still true. none yeah. of those balls are dropped yeah because in the beginning it's like you know remember i was complaining i'm like we got this guy and he's dead and we got this guy and he's dead and we got this guy and he's dead but they all connected to each other and the crazy typewriter you know all of it came down to to ivchenko or um faustus or fenhoff or whatever you want to call him right <laughs> all of it all of it came down to uh to the guy so um so, I mean, it all pulls together really nicely. It makes sense. It's really interesting. We see that Dottie was actually the inciting incident, you know, off screen before all the, but she was the one who got to Howard um, to get to his vault, you know? Right. There's a prologue that they wisely cut. Yeah. Where Dottie infiltrates Howard yes. Stark, for lack of a better sure. phrasing. Wait, Marvel? Cut a prologue? I'm sorry, I don't understand. Well, Marvel. don't get comfortable. 
Marvel never cuts the freaking prologue. They won't do it again. Didn't. I'm glad they didn't. You know, I mean, it's it's nice the way that this moves because this really is, you know, although it is about Howard, you know, this isn't Howard is not our protagonist. What, this, exactly. what she did to yes. Howard is not the protagonist. This is about, you know, uh, our Agent Carter getting a chance to do something when nobody at the SSR would give her anything to do aside from lunch orders and, and holding the phones, you know? So one of the other things, though, that I like is that we have these kind of reflections throughout. Like we open the season with Peggy remembering Cap going down in the plane, right? And we're having her kind of relive those memories. And part of that is because we're trying to give a little bit of the backstory for the viewer. But the nice thing about those memories is that it also really speaks to that Peggy is kind of stuck in this place, stuck in this grief, stuck in this loss, you know? Um, And it gives a real anchor to her emotions emotional space, which is one of the things I really love about Agent Carter is that we've got all this intrigue, we've got all this stuff going on, but we never lose contact with the emotional space that our characters are in, which I really love. But we open, you know, in Now Is Not The Time with Peggy remembering Cap going down in the plane. Um, And then we start Valediction, um, which is the last episode, the finale, with the reflection of that in the radio show. You know, Mm -hmm. where they're playing that scene in the radio show. Um, And then at the end of Valediction, we have Peggy on the radio with a guy who's flying a plane and is going to die. You know, I mean, it is such a reflection of that experience with Cap. And God bless them for not flashing back to Cap at that moment. Yes, They did it with the radio show. Yes. And they let it roll. Yeah. Yeah. Strong, brave choice, considering how often we get things spoon fed to us. Right. Exactly. As viewers. Exactly. And we didn't need that. It's like, yeah, no, I get it. She's on the radio. She's trying to talk this guy, you know. And and the thing is, like, when she's talking to Howard in that moment, you know, she's so connected with him. And she's not in love with him, you know, the way that she was with Kat. But he's in his mind, going to get Cap for her. Yeah, you know, they're both in love with Captain America. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's the connection that they have. It's still love, and it mm-hmm. still involves Captain America. It's just yes. they love him together. Yeah, so I think it's it's really nicely done. We have those wonderful reflections. You know, we open this whole thing with the men dismissing Peggy, and we hit more than once on her invisibility, only to see her constantly show herself to be more capable than any of them. And we, we get her being visibly capable when they go to Russia, which is, I think, a really nice kind of midpoint, you know, a turning point for that, where where they begin to really see her as an equal, you know, maybe not as an equal, but as, as more than they had seen her before, you know, it takes a while to move that mountain. It's a very vulnerable episode for Thompson. Yeah. Who has been that kind of um, bastion of paternalistic condescension. Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, Dooley doesn't like her. Dooley mm-hmm. doesn't want her. Yeah, yeah. Thompson has been the, oh, it'll be all right, precious kind of guy. (laughs) And for that episode to see her elevated right in front of him by these guys that they all consider heroes. Yeah. And then for him to make that really extremely vulnerable confession about his wartime experience to her. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was it was quite a turnkey moment for that dynamic. Yeah, that's a it's a big big moment and i i really i love that whole thing and of course it's peggy that saves everybody 
you know, in that. And that is at the midpoint, you know, mm-hmm. you do a turn, you change the context. That's part of how you, you know, you move your story forward. And it's just really like beautifully, this whole narrative from beginning to end, each episode individually, but also the whole arc of eight episodes, really, really beautifully structured. And the thing is, like, we get everything wrapped up you know we at the end of it we've got everything taken care of you know we know where everybody stands we've got everything settled she you know puts um steve's blood drops it into the river which i think is is really beautiful which shows her releasing him you know and part of this whole thing has been about her grief for cap without hitting us over the head with that which i really love now i'm not sure Mm -hmm. but i think that she is also on the brooklyn bridge yeah which means she's burying him at home as yeah. much as anybody's ever going to get to. Yeah. Yeah. There's a psychological aspect of that. She's she's putting him to rest, mm-hmm. you know, physically as well as emotionally. And she's doing it where he's from. And bringing him home. Bringing him home. Yeah. It's, man. Oh God. It's so powerful. It's so incredibly good. But, you know, we walk through this whole arc with Peggy's grief, you know, and, and like, that's one of the things that I love about this is that we're not forgetting our emotional stories that are being told here. We have Peggy's grief. We have Howard's guilt, you know, and we walk him through that as well. Um, we've got Jarvis's thirst for adventure, you know, combined with this deep love and respect that he has for Peggy. We have Peggy and Seuss's evolving relationship, which isn't about sex and hotness, but mutual respect and making a good team, which I would argue, you know, is pretty hot. It's pretty hot. <laughs> it works. Um, and we even have Peggy and Angie kind of evolving as best friends, you know, yeah. and one of my favorite moments in the whole thing, I swear, is when Angie lets her in through the window after the guys chased her out onto the ledge. She pulls her in and Peggy says, Angie, you're amazing. I knew you didn't work at the phone company. I also love that bit just yeah. because there is. No hesitation on Angie's part. Absolutely. I mean, it's wonderful when she, you know, leaves Peggy out on the ledge. We have a moment of, oh, God, what is she going to do? And she just beautifully carries the whole thing off. It's just amazing. I mean, you had a room full of federal agents telling her how dangerous Peggy Carter is. And Mm -hmm. she's like, yeah, but it's still Peggy. Right. (laughs) It's just an incredible connection between the two of them, despite literally Every single choice Peggy making trying to drive a wedge between them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, she can't be honest with Angie. She can't tell Angie who she is, you know, so she's always trying to push Angie away because we open with her, you know, having her roommate and the best friend that she has at that time. You know, I don't don't think they were particularly close, um, you know, being killed Uh, and because of her, you know, she doesn't want that to happen to Angie. So she tries to put that distance in there. But the two of them are just connected. It's just really, really fun to see them that way. So all of these emotional relationships are moving and evolving all the way through. You know, we've got bad guys that make sense all the way through. We've got this whole thing happening. We pull all these elements together. It's unbelievable. It's so incredibly well done. It is one of the most perfect seasons of television ever. I can't disagree with any of that. It's one of the tightest put together story packages in the MCU. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because I think an ongoing theme will be how much you and I love every one of these pieces, Mm -hmm. but that there's always something like, guys, just tighten the lines of conflict or something. I mean, cut one of the prologues, not all of the prologues, maybe one, maybe two, (laughs) right? (laughs) Right. 
But here we have one that is handled with as deft a touch as we could hope for. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it just, it works so beautifully and it's got such great clarity and it's got such connection to the emotional notes. I absolutely love it. But talking about the emotional notes, I mean, the relationship in this that I love the most is Peggy and Jarvis. It's very powerful. Yes. Yeah, they're just so incredibly good, you know, and and here we are in the episodes that we're talking about, you know, this week, we come in on the heels of Jarvis's betrayal, and we get this wonderful moment between the two of them. What he needs is a servant, and he already has that in you. And what does the SSR have in you? I am a federal agent, Mr. Jarvis. Yes. Finally trained and skilled in the art of fetching coffee. These men you call your colleagues, they don't respect you. They don't even see you. Do you honestly expect they'll change their minds? I expect I will make them. And I love from that both the way that he is almost like he feels like he's protective of her. He's like, they don't know you. They don't see in you what I see in you. They don't know what you are, you know. And she never loses her faith that she's strong enough to bust through all of it you know, and that she will make it work. So I I love the way the two of them are. I love she's not, you know, instantly forgiving, but they have to work together. She needs him in this moment. Mm -hmm. So she's going to go ahead and go with it. And they're such a great team, which is, you know, I mean, I love a good team, people that work well together. It's fantastic. Buddy cop movies work for a reason, right? Yeah, they absolutely do. And I think as much as I enjoy buddy cop movies, that the emotional center of them is mm-hmm. big surprise. I mean, I just said buddy cop. So we're talking yeah. usually about, you know, your big strapping white male mm-hmm. heroes. Typically. So, mm-hmm. of course, the emotional core is not as developed or it mm-hmm. takes three or four movies to. I'm looking at you, Lethal Weapon. Yes. You know, <laughs> but here... It's part and parcel of the whole thing. Like the yeah. betrayal only works because she cares because about they Jarvis. Because care so deeply for each other. Yeah. yeah. And, and his betrayal of her only hurts him because he cares what she thinks about him. Mm-hmm. Yes. Powerful business. No, it really is. It's so good. And, you know, I say all the time that if you want a romance to work, get two people who work well together. But, you know, I thought that works for every kind of relationship, for any kind of relationship. You know, um, one of the things that, that these two have in common, one of the things that pulls them together is that they both love this work. I mean, Jarvis's excitement when Peggy calls him has as much to do with, you know, his love for adventure as it does for his love for Peggy. I must say I was very pleased to receive your call. Can I assume you're back on the team? I don't believe we ever were on the same team, so no. We are still, however, working towards common goal. Fair enough. He will accept whatever terms she lays out. He, at this point, is like, I don't care anything you say. I'm in. I just want to do this thing, and I want to do it with you. You know? Um, And so it's so... It's so nice and it's so loving and, you know, he really just wants to make all of this up to her, which I really love. And then we get to the end, you know, the adventure is over, right? You know, this particular thing, Howard's name has been cleared. The reason that they work together you know, has passed. There's no need for her to need him to access, you know, Howard's information or anything like that. But we have this beautiful moment at the end of Valediction. I imagine you're looking forward to some peace and quiet. At the very least, having both feet on the ground. Yes, I've allowed several of my duties to fall by the wayside of late. My next project is is quite engrossing. 
A complete and total overhaul of the kitchen spices. Mm, fascinating. But should you again find yourself in need of my services, I would be honored to assist you at a moment's notice, Miss Carter. Thank you, Mr. Jarvis. And I love the way, you know, they're kind of joking with each other. And then in the middle, he's so genuine. He's like, if you ever need my services, in this very reserved British way of saying, please, please, please call me. <laughs> we did. We talked about how British they were. They and that, that might explain some of the awkwardness that you were reading as romance in the yes. first half. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're so buttoned up and yet so clearly friends. Right. You know, I mean, I think more deeply and more abidingly friends than mm-hmm. even Peggy and Howard have been up till oh. now. Absolutely. I mean, Jarvis, yeah. That stage is maybe set for something mm-hmm. deeper between Peggy and Howard, you know, now that they've really had to clean house through the process of this series. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, definitely. They are deeply in friend. Yeah, it is. It's a, it is deeply in friend. And that's the thing is that the, the relationships, especially between a man and a woman, you know, which is so heteronormative anyway and whatever but those relationships just because they aren't this like one true romantic love doesn't mean that they're not incredibly powerful relationships incredibly powerful friendships you know and that's what they have and it's so beautifully expressed and they their love and affection and caring for each other you know is so deep and right there and it's just it's so wonderful and i love it it honestly like you know when we have to talk at the end of the episode we gotta talk about our favorite parts and i gotta tell you (laughs) i had such a hard time picking one and i see how you dodged that so we'll talk about that later we certainly will all right (laughs) (laughs) well one of the other things i wanted to talk about was this i know my value thing right the hallmark quote of peggy carter the hallmark quote which is really really good um and I, I love it. On, a, on one level, I love it. On one level, I love it because she's so strong. She's so confident in herself. Her assessment of her own value never wavers for a second. She knows who she is. She knows what she can do. She is not plagued for a moment by any self-doubt. And I absolutely love that. And we see throughout, you know, that Peggy is about the work, not the glory. And I think that that's also very cool, you know, but she's constantly running rings around the rest of the team. Like we have this great moment in the Iron Ceiling. You already looked through that book 10 times. I'm going to have to take this back with me to Virginia. We're not taking that anywhere. Look, as difficult as it might be for you people to understand, I can't just beat a code into submission or shoot it with a gun. Yeah. That works great with pencil pushers like you. May I see it? I saw this at Bletchley. It's a one-time pad system. You think I didn't try a pad immediately? Did you account for the original message being written in Russian? Can you read it? (laughs) And I love that moment, you know, because she just knows what's going on. And it's not about showing anybody up. And she's not being, you know, snotty about it. She's just there to get the work done. And she can't help but show people up every time she does because she's so incredibly good, you know, at everything that she does. Right. She just is. I mean, she's in her element. This is the job she was born to do. Mm hmm. So, I mean, we have her. She's cracking the code. She gets the howling commandos for the Russian raid. She's the one who makes strategic suggestion that they invade in teams of four, not two. The list goes on and on, you know. And when she's caught, which is one of the things that I love, when they catch her, 
You know, and they bring her in and they've got her in this interrogation room. I conducted my own investigation because no one listens to me. I got away with it because no one looks at me. Because unless I have your reports, your coffee or your lunch, I'm invisible. But politely skips over the fact that she's also able to do them because she's smarter, tougher and more capable than all of them. With the possible exception of Susan. <laughs> I'm going to take this opportunity to say we should probably give Thompson a little credit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's admittedly kind of the fair haired child of the office, mm-hmm. but he also knows that that's all predicated on a lie. And I think he works really hard to make up for the fact that his re- reputation is not real. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he's a good agent. He I is mean, a good agent. Mm-hmm. I mentioned in the last episode that I'm a little confused by the SSR kind of acting like the FBI. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not the CIA. And I feel like he would have been amazing as an FBI agent. And as an SSR agent, it's like, well, I mean, if that's what they're going to have you do. Sure. <laughs> and he's OK. I mean, Thompson is OK. But, you know, Peggy's Peggy's better. Don't go too far. Don't yeah. let me go further than OK. Right. I'm just giving. <laughs> I'm not saying he's a bumbling idiot. You know, I mean, he's definitely not. He's got some he's got some chops, but he's not, you know, he's not at that level. And I think that Sousa is Sousa is smart and quiet and he's able to watch and see what's going yes. on, which is something that Thompson Thompson, while he. You know, he contributes to this idea of his reputation. Like he he wants to build himself up and build his career. And there's nothing wrong with that. But he's focused on him. And Sousa, I think, is more about the work. He's more like Peggy. He wants the job done. And I think textually, I can say you're right that Sousa is really the only character that gives her any kind of trouble because he's the only one that she has to actively undermine. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. And absolutely. part of that is because of what you're saying. Because he's, yeah, he's smart. He pulls the junk detail, but then he actually takes his time with the junk detail. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what do you know? Uncovers clues. Right, right. So. Well, one of the things I absolutely love, though, is this moment from Snafu, right? When they do that montage of them all investigating her, right? And she says, But I've never been more than what each of you has created. To you, I'm a stray kitten left on your doorstep to be protected. The secretary turned damsel in distress. The girl on the pedestal transformed into some daft whore. You're behaving like children. What's worse, what's far worse is that this is just shoddy police work. You were inches away from the I love that she's not offended by them damseling her. She's not offended by them thinking she's a whore. She's not offended by them thinking she's a stray kitten. She's offended by the fact that it is not good police work. My God, men, do your jobs. I love that about her. Really too. I think it's so fantastic. But then, like, the thing that bugs me about the whole thing, we get to the end. She has saved everybody. She has saved the city of New York. She has done all of this work. She's done everything. Thompson, you know, credit where credit was due, was there, you know. But he ends up, the senator comes in. Thompson takes all the credit, right? And we have this moment with Sousa. Why can't you just sit there and take that? Daniel... I'm going to tell that senator what really happened. Hell, I'll tell Truman himself. It really doesn't bother me. Well, it bothers the hell out of me. I saved that jerk's life. I don't need a congressional honor. I don't need Agent Thompson's approval or the president's. I know my value. Anyone else's opinion doesn't really matter. So I love this in the one way that she's so strong in herself. She's so confident in herself. But the thing that I really hate about it is that 
it promotes this idea that it is admirable for a woman to sit back and let a man take credit for her work. A man whose life she has saved more than once during the last few days alone. Let's just mention, you know, let's just get That's that on the point. table. Right. That's a fair you know? point. But if we do certain things with women where we idealize certain behaviors and those behaviors inevitably benefit the men around them. You know, women are not supposed to be forceful or they're bossy. Women are not supposed to be, you know, like, a million, like you're not supposed to talk about yourself and you're not supposed to, you know, um, say what what's good about you and what you've done and let the man take the credit, you know, and all this kind of stuff. Like, I like that she's about the work. I like that she doesn't care. I like that she doesn't want it, you know, and that it's not important to her. But at the same time, I think that we we promote this idea of the quiet woman who does all the work in the background and then lets the men look like they did it. It kind of bristles at me a little bit. I understand completely. And I'm not even going to push back hard enough to say like that's like that's a bad take or a wrong take mm-hmm. or anything like that. And so maybe it's a little easier for me to read this the way that I choose to read it, that this is Peggy the pragmatist. Yeah. The realist. Right. It's not worth the time. It's not worth the energy. I'm not going to get anywhere anyway. Well, it's worse even than not mm-hmm. getting somewhere. It's that if she pushes it and forces them to acknowledge her. She will have actually diminished herself in their eyes in the process. Like it's a terrible catch 22. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think at the end of the day, she'd rather keep her dignity and know her own value. Right. And I'm also going to say, this is not in the name of forgiving this behavior, Mm -hmm. but this is the thing that I think works in this period piece that I would be a lot more upset about in a show set in modern times. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm going to put a pin in this and we're not going to talk about it until the time, but a comparative analysis of Peggy Carter and Jessica Jones Uh would be well worthwhile. Yeah. Like what what has the passage of this time changed Mm -hmm. about the way that these very capable women present themselves in the world and what hasn't changed? Yeah. You know, and so in 1946, it's not great. I'm not excited about it, but I think I get her. Mm -hmm. Like, I understand what she's doing. Yeah. And that it's, at the end of the day, it's about her dignity for herself. You know? Yeah, and all of it, none of it would bother me. None of it would bother me. As a matter of fact, I would love it because I love that she's about the work. I love that she's so confident in herself. If this wasn't something that we do to women. That we we tell stories that say, oh, the the you know qu- the sweet quiet woman who's capable in the background and makes the men look good, um, like that's something that we we put in our stories. And I mean, that's the thing. Like the things that we put in our stories are the messages that we internalize. You know, it's true. And mm-hmm. so when you have that, and it's like, you know, isn't she heroic? Just you know, letting the men take credit for her work, which is something that women have been doing for ages, because women aren't supposed to speak up for themselves, and they're not supposed to, you know, say, no, this isn't good enough for me. Um, they're supposed to just sit there and take it and be sweet and be polite, and they're they're culturalized to do that. Like we are taught culturally to do that for reasons that benefit the people who put that in the stories. You know, because those are the things. Yeah, that that's absolutely. The that they want. So. You know, I mean, I it, it it grates on me. It wouldn't grate on me if it wasn't everywhere, you know, but I do yeah. love absolutely everything else about Peggy Carter. So I kind of have to let it go. I'll say this isn't going to make it good for you, mm-hmm. but I will say if we're going to laud this show for being so tightly a package. Yeah, that is on theme. It is. Yeah. I mean, again, I'm not expecting you to suddenly love it. <laughs> 
No, I mean, I do love but it. But it's on theme, you I know. I do love it. In the microcosm of Peggy Carter, it's all fantastic. This is, you know, extrapolating this out to a broader cultural problem that we have. Absolutely. The wider, con- you want some kind of textual spotlight shown on how wrong that is. And I think we kind of get one from Sousa. Well, Sousa is the voice of that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think, I mean, we can't jump out of this text to the next text per se, but right. I think you do get a through line from that into the second season yes. to an extent, mm-hmm. which we'll talk more about when we get to it. But yes. yeah, I yes, the, the wider context makes it suck, even <laughs> if it's incredibly on theme <laughs> it, it's wonderful in in the space that it's in i mean everything within you know like the world of peggy carter is absolutely fantastic it's just that this is something that and i don't believe at all that it was a message that was being deliberately you know but it's just like it's it's that when you have a bruise on that one part yes. you know, when somebody pokes you in the same spot in your shoulder over and over and over again it just takes the lightest touch to make you cringe you know, yeah, and absolutely. So and if we were mm-hmm. looking at it as a historical mm-hmm. artifact, yeah. But no, this is still happening. So yes, completely. Right, I right. We're still making totally. the conscious decision to to push that message in this moment. And I think that Sousa speaks up well for it. I think I'm making a bigger deal out of it than necessarily needs. It's just again, it's one of those things that grates on me a little bit. But no, I'll say it's yeah. worth interrogating that statement. I know my value because it is literally the line that launched this show. Yeah. It is. I mean that that was the line from the short mm-hmm. about Peggy. I think that made everybody go. Oh, yeah. You guys want to start developing this? I think we should maybe develop this, you know. Yeah. So, but it's worth interrogating it that it is an extremely self-possessed and powerful statement. Yeah. That is, wow, look at that. Even Peggy Carter is a product of her time. All right. Well, one of the things, though, that I absolutely love in all of these episodes and whenever he shows up is Howard. How do you like Howard? How do you feel about Howard, Josh? I enjoy Howard mm-hmm. a lot. Mm-hmm. And I also feel like if I knew Howard in real life, I would punch his face. Right. (laughs) You know? Yes. He's not. He's just a little too oily, a little too slick, only not as slick as Tony Stark. You know, we talked about that. But I also feel like I would spend a great deal of time punching Tony's face, too. So, (laughs) you know, well, so I love him in this space, but he is not a character that I wind up feeling like I want to hang out with. Howard is complicated for me. My responses to Howard are complicated. I, I like him. You know, I mean, he's, he's, he's no Tony Stark. I mean, Tony Stark is a whole other thing. But, you know, we have this moment, right, where he sweeps into the SSR like a goddamn diva, right? <laughs> you know? <laughs> other things that run in the family along with uh – uh, engineering expertise. Exactly. Exactly. Tony the man knows how to make it from, no, from nowhere. Right. I mean, he walks in. They're all saying Russia. He tricked us into bring him into this country. There's something specific that he is targeting. We just have to find out what it is. The target is me. Hey, get your hands up. Get your hands up. Told you. What kind of welcome is this? How the hell did you get in here? You know who designed the SSR security system? Yeah, the same outfit that secures the White House. Exactly. They stink. You should have hired me. I know. You missed me. Here he is, this cocky son of a bitch, walking in, (laughs) 
after everything that he has put everyone through on his behalf. I mean, let's not forget that Peggy and Jarvis have been through some hell while Howard was, I don't know, playing craps in Monte Carlo. I don't know where the hell he was, but he was off having a great grand time. I can almost guarantee you, you know, if, if our example of him in the Griffin is any kind of indication. Yeah. This guy wasn't eating beans from a can while they were going through all this stuff. I mean, he, you know, and then he just sweeps into the SSR. He's so cocky about this whole thing. Um, and then we get this moment where he's talking They're to Peggy to in the lab. Into the open. Name one. Name three. There it is. Stops a 50 cal round from 100 feet. Unless you're planning to put it on your head, it won't be enough. I trust you to keep me safe. You're punishing yourself. I'm redeeming myself. I have enough blood on my hands. I don't need yours as well. I've had to go through my life not caring what people think of me, but I do care what you think. Now, after everything you said to me last time, I thought... Howard, I was angry. That doesn't mean I want you to die. Well, that makes two of us. But you know and I know that this is my fault. General McGuinness saw midnight oil and used it recklessly. He is at fault. Can you not see that? I need to fix this. Otherwise, I won't be able to live with myself. You're mad. As a hatter. So he makes this huge speech to her, this redemptive speech. She turns her back and he steals Steve's blood and stuffs it into his, his little bag there. Like, he is a trickster hero. I think he has much more in common with Loki than he does with Tony Stark, I gotta say. Well... I push back on you only because I feel like Tony is the trickster hero when Loki's not around. Oh, no, fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. You know, when Loki comes in the room, he's like, oh, that's precious. I will take over the trickster area. (laughs) Thank you. It's been filled. That position is filled. You know, but as soon as he walks out of the room and it's like Cap and Thor, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I almost now want there to have been a moment in, uh, you know, in Avengers when Thor is like, you sound familiar. Yes. Mm-hmm. But you're not wrong because I think that Howard is actually a better trickster than Tony is. I think he's more of a trickster than Tony is. Yeah. yeah. Tony's more the flash side, the yeah. look at me side. Howard is kind of back there still getting stuff done. Tony's a charmer. And, and yeah. Howard is a trickster. And the thing is, is that, you know, Howard makes that whole speech. And I think one of the great elements of the trickster is the shapeshifter. Like Tony is always Tony. He makes people come to him, right? You know, that's true. But Howard does this whole redemptive speech, you know, you know, and I know it's my fault. Right. And she turns her back and the bastard grabs Steve's blood. Like now, do you feel like that undermines his redemptive speech? Well, I, okay. A little bit, yes, but on the other hand, no. I think that he is both of those guys at the same time. I also think that his redemptive speech is for Peggy, but he still doesn't trust the government. Right. No, fair enough. Fair enough with the last bit of Steve's blood. But you never know because there are so many motivations that could be behind it. Many of them It's true. It's true. That you can't really say why he's doing what he's doing, and you can't turn your back on Howard Stark, not for a second. I can't argue with any of that. Yeah. But then I think my favorite thing, though, is that moment with Dottie in the car after she's kidnapped him. (laughs) He's trying to remember who she is. You know, I should be afraid for my life. There's just something about you that puts me at ease. Must be those eyes. You don't remember me, do you? Should I? You and I spent a nice weekend together not too long ago. 
Is it Alex? And boom, she hits him with the gun. <laughs> and I, I love that whole moment because I love Howard. I have complicated feelings about Howard. I love right. Howard. Howard annoys me. That whole punch him in the face thing. I like that Dottie did that. I wanted to punch him in the right. face. I couldn't reach through the TV and do it. So Dottie did it for me. And I kind of like in that. In that moment, Except Dottie is all of us. Dottie's the hero in that moment. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm really confused by that whole line from Howard anyway, because even before we knew that Dottie was something more. Yeah. I always was like, she's a little too intense. Those eyes are not putting me at ease. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Those eyes are, are 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 crazy. Those eyes have got pinwheels running in yeah. it, you know? So, yeah. So, very confusing. But, yes, I appreciate Dottie swooping in and doing the thing that I have now and then wished I could do to Howard. I, my complicated feelings basically split between how do I feel about Howard when he's on screen and yeah. what do I think about what it would be like to actually hang out with Howard. Right. You know, when he's on screen, I am delighted. Yes, Bring him on. Exactly. You know? <laughs> But in those in those moments where I'm like, maybe I would like to hang out with no, 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 no. I want to smack I'm gonna punch him. In the head. him. I really yeah. do, <laughs> you know. And I mean, he is like this. I don't know. He just he's he's all of these really complicated things that seem to be at war with each other. And the thing that about Tony is that I always know who Tony is. You know, Howard. I don't know who Howard is. Like I don't. There's so many different different shades of Howard at any given moment. I mean, that's really, you know, the element of the trickster. It's the shape, it's the shapeshifter, you know? Um, and that's what Howard is. And I never, I can never really get a handle on him. Like whenever he does anything, I don't know why he's doing it. And I don't mind that. I mean, I think that's deliberate. I think it's part of the character. I don't think it's a, it's a problem at all with the no, writing. No, I think no. that it's, it makes him really interesting. But it's just one of those things where like with Howard, I never, I never really know. The only time we see him be really, I think, genuine is at the end, you know, when he's getting in the plane and he's going to go get Cap for, for Peggy. You know, mm -hmm. and when he's under that hypnosis and when he's under the hypnosis, he doesn't have that control of his shapeshifter properties. And you kind of get a sense of who he really is. Did you feel that? Oh, yeah. I mean, Ivchenko just peels the layers off of him. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's a moment when he's like, I'm not a bad person. Yes. Yes, you are. It's not even... The brutal truth teller, like we've discussed with Thompson. Yeah. It's just, uh, I know I see right through you. And and kind of like we talked about in our last episode, mm -hmm. I think he's trying not to be that person anymore. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, he can't deny the fact that he was that person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, and so it does cut him. Like yeah. it just, it's not the only thing about him anymore, mm -hmm. but the fact that. Ivchenko's able to cut right to that quick so quickly. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, um, that I think that's why I know that there is a heart of tarnished gold underneath there somewhere. Yeah. He's got a soft spot you can poke. So mm -hmm. he must, you know, he's got goodness there. Right. And, and interestingly, you talk about him as trickster. You're never quite sure how he's going to be. That might actually kind of fill in a space for me as far as how he becomes the, Slattery version 
The slattery version feels like a a very flattened version. I mean, I think he loses like the slattery version is what goes dark after he loses yeah. his trickster abilities. Yes. Yeah. yeah. He he decides mm-hmm. that this is the person he needs to be from here on out for whatever reason. Right. And so he just he I stops may have mentioned shifting. the 50s were tough. God, that's on America's soul. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um and he just puts that aside to be this other guy because he thinks that's what America needs. The Maybe. shield needs. I don't know. I mean, God, I want to see that movie. That show. I want to understand that. Yeah. Like how we get from, well, cause I kind of like this idea that like he, he either gives up or loses his ability to be the trickster and that that's mm-hmm. what sends him into the latter day slattery. Howard Stark seems to be. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. That's I mean, really maybe, interesting. Maybe it's America. You mm-hmm. know, maybe it's the 50s and 60s. Maybe it's Maria. Maybe yeah. he decides to get real. Yeah. With this woman that he loves, you know? Like, yeah. there could be a good altruistic reason at the at the center of it that still results but in this hardens. person who... Yeah, he because he doesn't know how to be this person, right? Yeah. I have to stop being that person because I love Maria, mm-hmm. but I don't know how to do this person very well. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's really interesting. And I'm I'm kind I'm of I'm launching a thousand fanfics. Yeah, no, I'm really interested in that story. <laughs> All right. So we've been talking about her a little bit. The lady with the coldest eyes you've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about Dottie. Now, one of the things that I've seen and and I've I've witnessed this, I think, more in Buffy the Vampire Slayer is, as everybody knows, I do a podcast called Still Pretty, where I talk about Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And one of the things that happens in Buffy in this fantasy universe is that uh, on from time to time, you know, on occasion, you will get mind controlled. You will be yeah. possessed by a wild pack of hyenas or something like that, you know. Sure. Um, these things happen, it's right? It's a superhero trope as well. Like, it's, it's a conversation we have to have in superhero comics fairly often. Oh, good, good. Okay, so there's... A, I'm not familiar, again, with super, superhero, but I know Buffy, like, the back of my hand. And so it's one of these conversations that I've had over and over again, is when are you responsible for your behavior and when are you not? I mean, the general rule, I think, in fiction is if you're not in control of yourself, you're not responsible for what you do when somebody else is driving the bus, right? You know, so mm-hmm. we see Ivchenko do mind control on various people we don't hold them responsible Dooley you know who is kind of a turd all throughout we don't talk about Dooley very much I'm not a big fan of Dooley um until that he's last there to do the job moment. that he does yeah you know yeah like like he and, and the actor does it very competently mm-hmm. I never quite hate Dooley but I certainly don't like Dooley yeah I don't and care that leaves about us in Dooley. a place where it's like yeah. Good job, fella. You, you know, know, and we have his his heroic turn at the end where he sacrifices Absolutely. himself. You know, which is which is a nice turn for Dooley. And in that moment, I actually like him quite a bit. Um, but you know, but everything that Dooley does while Ivchenko is is working him, we don't hold him responsible for. You know, and no. we have this moment too where you know in the theater when they're investigating, uh, Sousa gets infected by a little bit of that gas. He goes mm-hmm. crazy. He attacks Thompson, although nobody could ever possibly blame him for that but he also hits peggy you know um yeah. but he's he's not responsible he wakes up and he is not responsible he's not held responsible for any of it right um but dotty right dotty was raised 
And I think what we can call an abusive environment that chains her to a bed every night, you know, mind controlled from the time she's a small child. And then here she is working with Ivchenko. Is Dottie responsible? You just used a metaphor that I'm going to steal for how I feel about Dottie. Okay. So the thing you just said was, you know, every now and then somebody's going to take the wheel of the bus. Right. And I think the question with Dottie is, this is the bus, maybe. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, I mean, uh-huh. you can definitely make an argument that that was created by the Red Room. Who knows sure. who she would have been as a human being if not for the Red Room. But there's not a bus to take the wheel from. <laughs> well, but is is Ivchenko, he's been working with her for a long time. We see a flashback to four years earlier. Mm-hmm. Right. So they've been around each other for a long time. Is he controlling her? I mean, does he have control over her? I mean, he's not there every minute to like, and it does seem too that he can only control people if he's actually with them. Mm-hmm. You know, like Nicola when he's in the um, jail, although what the reality of that situation is, who the hell knows? Because he set himself up to look like he, they were freeing him from jail so that he could get brought over. But you've got the flashback where he yeah. says, you have to focus on me. You have to focus. Focus. Yeah. Focus. I don't think he's in control of Dottie in that way. Right. I think she's what the Red Room made her. But here's the thing. She runs the traffic light. She runs the traffic light. Dottie does not make mistakes, right? I super hate that scene. Oh, you super do. Okay, I think it's really interesting. You're going to make that scene less terrible for me. Okay, good. Except that I don't, I just don't quite buy the argument. <laughs> well, no, because I feel like there is an inner Dottie that is trying to break out from all of this because yeah. no way, no way in hell does Dottie run a light no way. This woman has control, complete control over absolutely everything, you know? And um, No, I agree. So the fact that they had to run a light, that it wasn't something like, you know, out of her control, that was so completely in her control, I find really interesting. And I mean, granted, they did, they needed a cop and they ended up using him later. Although at the moment that they're getting pulled over, He's he doesn't seem if Chenko doesn't, you know, is like, just be cool, be cool. You know, let's not have any trouble. Right. You know, and (laughs) act straight, act straight. Exactly. So it's not his idea, but they do have a cop. They do have him later. I mean, they obviously needed him. So they got him. But it's not until the moment she's going to leave and he's going off to his car and he gets the call that that's the car that, they, that he should be looking for. And then that's when she comes out and gets him. I am so unclear as to what's going on in that scene. But the only thing yeah. I can think of is that she has, there's a part of Dottie that is trying to, to stop it. It redeems what is otherwise just Dottie being needlessly stupid. Yeah. So I don't hate that. But... Her immediate reach for the gun, like she's going to put a pill in that cop right away. Yeah. But I mean, they needed that cop. So, I mean, the thing is, like, it makes sense to me that Dottie would have run the light to get the cops so that he could talk to him. Like, had they done that, that would have completely made sense to me. This scene doesn't make sense to me because she accidentally gets pulled over. If Chenko's like, be cool, be cool. We didn't want this, but, you know, this is happening. So just be cool. 
the cop is leaving. He gets the call on his radio. So she would have let him go. But then yeah, I he, think so. he gets the call on his radio. She holds him at gunpoint. And then, oh, by the way, they mind control him and they use him to capture Howard Stark. Like, it's, I don't know, like that scene, that scene is a problem for me because I don't know what the hell's going on in that scene, but it looks like there's an inner Dottie trying to, to stop this. And then we have this moment in Valediction too, which I think is really interesting. You know, where Dottie is, is fighting with Peggy, right? I used to be so jealous of girls like you. I would have done anything to walk like you, to talk like you, but now... I can be anybody I want. Oh, I've got a great idea. Maybe I'll be an SSR agent next. What do you think of that? Dottie is not personal throughout this whole thing. Like, none mm-hmm. of this seems really personal, except for that moment where she gets a little light in her eyes when she takes the automatic away from the... <laughs> I want that. I the only that. thing that puts a little fire in her yeah. and down deep in her soul exactly. is a cool gun. A cool gun. But here we have this, I used to be so jealous of girls like you. It's personal. Like suddenly we've got this personal thing with Dottie. What is it that she's after? What is it that she wants? She seems to be just a tool for Ivchenko. Like Dottie is so interesting and layered and rich and, and not unlike Howard in that I can't, I can't pin this girl down. I don't Mm -hmm. know who she is. I don't know what she is. And I thought that was really interesting. The way that she resented Peggy, she resented what Peggy has. Here's some more on theme stuff, right? She resents autonomy that she sees Peggy as having. Yeah. Peggy does not feel as though she has a bunch of autonomy. Right. I mean, certainly she does more than little girls chained to bed. Sure, sure. You know, I'm not saying that. But, you know, as far as Dottie can see looking at Peggy, Mm -hmm. it's go out and do whatever you want, be whatever you want. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. it's been your choices. I wonder... And there is no way to know this, but I wonder if the writers kind of as they were going were like, I really like how this Dottie is shaping up. (laughs) We might want to set her up to be kind of a big deal Mm -hmm. for the next season because she makes a lot of sense as an opposite number villain for Peggy. Oh, she does. You know, I mean, and really she's doing that job in this, too, because everything Peggy says about running her investigation is equally true about Dottie running her operation. Yeah. Mm hmm. She's invisible. Yeah. Even Peggy doesn't notice her. Exactly. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. I would love to read that scene the way you read it just to make Dottie not incompetent Mm -hmm. in that moment. And I think the thing that hangs me up is we are never given any inkling of her desiring to go her own way before that. And it's only when things kind of go south at the end that she starts talking like, maybe I'll do this other thing. Exactly. Exactly. Like we don't really get anything from Dottie to understand who she is. And she's, I love every moment with her. I love every scene that she's in. I love everything that she says. Like she's fantastic, but she's not consistent entirely. I think that if anything, you know, this is a great season of television. It is almost perfect. I think if anything, they fell down a little bit with building Dottie up as a consistent thing or something that we could understand who and what she is, you know? I can backfill it a little bit from espionage yeah. side where mm-hmm. she's supposed to be a cipher. Right. She's supposed to be whoever she needs to be in the moment. They've built her to be that way. Mm-hmm. 
So, I mean, I think I can make it to where it doesn't bother me at all, except for the scene where she runs a damn red light. Yeah. Well, she runs the red light and then it's so personal with Peggy. Like, these are two things that I feel like bring us something in Dottie that's that's more than just, you know, this kid that that's a, a trained assassin that's just doing her job, you know? And textually, extra textual to Agent Carter, but textual to the larger MCU, we do know of at least one Black Widow, one mm-hmm. Red Room graduate yeah. who has, well, turned good might be a little strong, but definitely <laughs> turned gray. Right, right, right. Yeah. Or who's, who's gotten control of herself and made yeah. her own decisions, you know? Like Dottie doesn't seem to be, Dottie was raised to do this and this is just who she is. But, like, we have no sense of of anything within her, like anything that's personal to her, except for these two things. And and I don't think it's deliberate. I think that the, the, you know, I used to be jealous of girls like you, showing that there's something in Dottie, setting her up to be something bigger, Mm -hmm, you know. mm -hmm. But I don't think we get enough of that for it to, to make a lot of sense at this point, you know, for us to have any clarity in her at this point. I don't want to give anything away, but this kind of goes back to one of the things I appreciate about the Unstoppable Wasp. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is that she had one friend Mm -hmm. in the Red Room. Yeah. And that one friend is very, very important to her present. I am free, but my friend is not life. Mm -hmm. And I didn't even think about it in terms of this until you're talking about how it's like we have no spark of life in Dottie. That's her own. And now I'm realizing that's a pretty masterful stroke as far as. The wasp goes mm-hmm. um, that w- no matter what, she's very optimistic. She's very full of life. She's doing all these other things. But she's also like, I have a friend, one yeah. friend. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, it's mm. it's interesting. It's a lot going on. That's a shocking nice. amount going on with Dottie or not. We can't we tell. We don't know. I know. Spy stuff. I know. But it's so cool. <laughs> I love I love Dottie. She's one of my favorite things in this season. I think she's just so fantastic. All right. So talked about this a little bit. I sort of, you know, hinted at it a bit when I was talking about my my writer's room discussion. We've got some weirdness going on with inclusion. Yeah. Weirdness is the right word. Yeah, it is weird. Yeah. So we do have a lot of casual inclusion, Mm -hmm. right? Like they're not forefront characters by and large, but we have a lot of people in the background played by people of color. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've got one of Howard's Mm ex-girlfriends. We've got Agent Lee in the SSR. We've got the Howling Commandos. But we see no other women of color, like none. Mm -hmm. Aside from Howard's, there's the one Asian woman. The one, yeah. And she's she's probably like the most entertaining of those. Mm Mm-hmm. But, you know, here we have the Griffith, a room of ladies. Yeah. And I mean, I could probably go back and look just to be sure, but I don't remember anybody. I don't you know? I don't remember seeing anyone who wasn't like your your standard white girl, your standard 1940s white woman, you know. And so the yeah. rest of them are men. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Even happy Sam Sawyer. Mm-hmm. Love him. Played by Leonard Roberts. Yep. Mm-hmm. He gets a couple lines. Yeah. <laughs> but we have the first Avenger making that equality within the Howling Commandos textual. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm from Fresno, Ace. Exactly. Now let's move on. Right. Mm-hmm. But Dum Dum is the one who does most of the talking. Yeah. And I appreciate that he does most of the talking because he's doing it from behind that fantastic mustache. Exactly. But, <laughs> but then, like, look who dies. Right. 
Lee yeah. dies. And then we get, you know, um, we get Sam held hostage and has to be rescued by a, a white man. Of course, it's Evchenko, our bad guy, you know. But it's it just, you know, we damsel this black policeman, you know, who, who pulls Dottie over. He also dies. It feels to me like, first of all, we're not acknowledging all of the, the different kind of layers of oppression that you have you yeah. know, within that. I just did. I just did an episode of How Story Works, which was uh, on His Girl Friday, which was produced in 1940, right? So it mm-hmm. is contemporary to the to the time um, in which there were some, the, it, was, it was just dripping with white supremacy. I mean, just dripping with it. And these were our hero characters, that were rubber stamping, you know, this, this white supremacist like idea, you know? So in 1940s, New York, which is, which is what his girl Friday was, which gives us like a a primary source of the time contemporary, you know, to it. Um, You know, we're seeing this kind of casual, you know, inclusion, like let's, and, and I mean, I like on the one hand that actors are getting work, Right. You know, because it's the white actors that get all the work and damn it, let's give some different actors some work at the same time. We're working the sexism so hard, you know, and we're not acknowledging, you know, if you're including people in this story and pretending that racism wasn't a thing in 1940s New York, it feels wrong. Is that... (laughs) Yeah. Okay. I have two like sides of myself that are at war over this. Yeah. One of those sides is informed by you because Mm -hmm. you are often a person who says that reality is no excuse for fiction. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Right. The other side is my fascination with like a hard boiled detective stories is a little more West Coast than East Coast. Mm -hmm. But I know some stuff about Los Angeles in this time period. Mm -hmm. They were advertising themselves as the great white spot of America. Oh, my God. Like, that's what they wanted you to do was move out there because it's all white people. It uh-huh. wasn't. That was a lie from jump. <laughs> but that was the bill of sale that they were selling. And you get some of that in, uh, well, you get a lot of it in Raymond Chandler novels mm-hmm. by, you know, a, a writer hero. You get it in Chinatown. Yeah. And so on one hand, it's that's reality. Yeah. And that's no defense for the fiction. And I appreciate that they are just, as you say, ca- being casually diverse. Yes. Just sure. Put people in there. It's fine. Right. Even in in places like as an SSR agent, Mm -hmm. you know, the other half of my brain is like, we are doing so good with the sexism in this show that to ignore the racism of the time, like to pretend that the racism was any less virulent than the sexism, sexism. it seems Mm -hmm. disingenuous. It, It is. And I mean, that's the thing. It's like what we talked about when we talked about Captain America. That like this this sort of glossing over of, you know, anti-Semitism that we just mm-hmm. we just pretend it's not there because it is it's so heavy to carry that. It's, you know, and I think that there's on the one hand, I want to see as much diversity as possible. On the one hand, I want more diversity, especially I want these actors getting work. I want these people above the line. I really want these people. I really yeah. want more diversity above the line because I think that's where we have people who can who can write about this 
with some knowledge, with some understanding and, and with the proper dexterity so that you can acknowledge it on the one hand without having to hijack the story on the other, because that's not what this story is about, you know? That's the trick, right? Yeah. This is Peggy's story. Mm-hmm. And so sexism is the viewpoint. It's huge. Absolutely. And I appreciate that mm-hmm. because kind of the counterpoint to this would be uh, Walter Mosley's Devil in a Blue Dress. Mm-hmm. Hard-boiled detective novel about an African-American, again, in Los Angeles. Yeah. I have a type, <laughs> Lonnie. I have a type when it comes to detective novels. I get it. I get it. This was turned into a movie you may have seen, Denzel Washington, 1995. Yep. Fantastic film. And it does make the story all about that, as it should be. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. So I'm torn in this space where it's like, do we make that part of the deal yeah. Or do we, it, this is the place where we said, we said it in Captain America. Mm-hmm. We are not Jewish. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't know if throwing breadcrumbs or nodding at, but not going whole hog is better or worse than ignoring the problem. But somehow this middle space that Agent Carter does with its casting feels like the worst of both worlds. It does. It kind of feels, I don't know. Like it feels... It feels uncomfortable to me. There's something yeah. there's something there that I feel like we need some dexterity there. We need some way to not pretend that it's something other than it was. And again, like reality is no defense for fiction. I've said it a million times, absolutely. But I think that when when there are issues like that that are that are so deeply woven within you know our culture when we pretend that they're not there when we don't look at them directly in the eye we sort of give ourselves a pass on them i think mm-hmm. in a certain way and we're definitely you know, and i'm not sure that we can do and i think that there's something that when we when we make certain people invisible you know it, it, or when we make their plight, their plight invisible. invisible. Yeah, like it's just I don't know. So I'm stuck. I'm I'm stuck where you are. I like more diversity. I want more diversity. But like I want everybody to be able to get work. I want everybody to have these opportunities. You know, um, I want white to not be the default. I want white to not be the damn default all the time. Yeah, because you know it gets boring. I mean, just like you know, forget like all the the social justice stuff. It's just boring like tell me some different stories and uh, you know and i mean the thing is at the same time like you don't want it hijacking the story that's not what this story is about but i just don't feel like we should get a pass on it i feel like if we're going to be bringing in you know right after we've had i mean i think that lee was a chinese character but you know let's face it (laughs) um Americans are not really good at acknowledging that there are different places that people come from, you know, and after we just had this, you know, big war with Japan, anybody who looked, you know, like from any Asian area at all. Concentration camps. Yeah. I mean, for Christ's sake. Yeah. Like, so, I mean, you know that Lee is going to be having some issues there, even though he's Chinese, just because Americans are ignorant a lot of the time, you know, so. I don't know. I I find it complicated. I don't have the answer for it. I feel like 
there is something very uncomfortable for me in the the invisibility of these parts of our history of mm-hmm. not seeing not not just not seeing the characters and the people you know of color and the people of different backgrounds you know but we're like oh no let's pretend like none of that ever happened you know and it, it did and so i don't know like i i honestly i have no answer for this i really don't i know that agent carter did fantastic with the sexism they really handled all of that really well i like that we have um, a character, you know, with a cane um, who is kick ass and superhero and and really smart and really capable and sexy as hell. I love that, you know. So I think that they do really well with what they do and what they don't do, they chose not to do. And I just I have I have a like an uncomfortable spot with the invisibility of it. I think that's it. I think that that is kind of the middle space where I don't want new modern fiction Mm -hmm. that is on its face trying to dismantle some of what was wrong with the way we thought about people in that era Mm -hmm. to then turn around and pretend like that wasn't somebody else's experience also. Like there weren't other people having that. Exactly. And I just don't know how to get that. Especially because that's not what this story is about. It's not what this one's about. Yeah. I think we're going to revisit this in season two. I think we're going to revisit this in a lot of different ways all throughout the MCU. <laughs> yes, but there is a, yeah. there's a particular character I have in mind we've for got, season we've two. Got some, we definitely have some discussions to have. So we'll, we'll have that uncomfortable discussion again. Just hang around <laughs> for Agent Carter season two. All right. So talking about our superhero, Sousa, I kind of want to talk about him just a little bit. I love, I love him. I love the badass way he uses the cane. I love the way he can take anybody down. He's so tough. Um, he's smart. He's everything. Like, I love everything about Sousa. I think he's fantastic. One of the things, though, that I really love is Peggy used her disadvantage, right? Being a woman, right? Her mm-hmm. invisibility. And she made it into an advantage, you know, by making it possible for her to investigate basically anyone without knowing. And Sousa does a lot of that same stuff. He has a certain level of invisibility, too, because he was injured in the war. And, and he gets treated, you know, like lesser. And then he uses the cane, the very symbol of that disability, to beat the holy hell out of more than one person, which I freaking love, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so we have these two people who've both turned, you know, disadvantages into advantages. And I kind of like that mirroring between the two of them. But I love also that, like, he's the one who figures out what's going on with Peggy. And he turns yes. her in. He doesn't hesitate. You know, he doesn't hesitate to turn her in. He doesn't try to, like protect her he doesn't try to go to her first and get her side of the story because he's going to protect her from you know whatever like in a way turning her in shows his tremendous amount of respect for her yes i agree you know and i love that but god that moment in the alleyway when they're just getting away she's just knocked out thompson right and he (laughs) comes around the corner there's more to this daniel more than you can understand from where I'm standing, it's looking pretty cut and dry. You're not going to shoot me. Peggy, don't run. If you run, I'll know it's true. I'm sorry, Daniel. And she runs. And I mean, that moment is so heartbreaking. You can see how much he cares about her 
how much he respects her. And that moment where she says, you're not going to shoot me, you know, and she knows he can't run after her. So it's just this wonderful moment between the two of them. And God, I love it. I love Sousa. I mean, how, how do you like Sousa? I enjoy Sousa a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I noticed him as much my first couple of times through because th- mm-hmm. we've talked. There's so much going on oh, in God, this yeah. show. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he's a quiet kind of background thing, you know. Exactly. I mean, he's like the Peggy in Peggy's story yeah. while Peggy is the Peggy in everybody else's story. Right. Mm-hmm. I've been keeping a much closer eye on him as – I've noted your enjoyment yeah. and he's he really is great. And I feel like the moment when she says, you're not going to shoot me. Mm-hmm. And he said and he says, if you run, I'll know it's true. Yeah. Ties into another moment mm-hmm. when he is having a conversation with Dooley and Thompson. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to decide if Peggy can be trusted. And they say, I think she's telling the truth. What do you think, chief? Do you trust her? No. But I trust Russo's gut. Take a couple of men across the street and do a look-see. What about a channel? So in that clip, you have them trusting Sousa's gut. Mm -hmm. And I think in the alley, Sousa's gut told him that there was more going on here. He had to arrest her. Yeah. And he had to treat her like a very dangerous person because he knows she is. Mm -hmm. But he also, deep down inside, was like, Something is not right here. Mm -hmm. And I think he was even trying to convince himself when he was like, if you run, I'll know it's true. Yeah. Because they're in that he's arguing with his own gut. And it's pretty cool that that's sort of textual from Peggy's perspective. Mm -hmm. We've watched him be sent down to the docks and find, you know, the Mm -hmm. hobo informant. Yep. Based on his gut. And then in the end, even though it's Dooley and his fair haired child, Thompson, they're like, what do you think, Sousa? You know? Yep. Um, yeah, it's really just a lot of him being differently competent yes. than Thompson or yes. Peggy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and man, you know, you said in the last episode how much you don't love the phrase differently abled. Yeah. I have no idea how people who are living with disabilities feel about that phrase, honestly. Uh-huh. But differently competent. Yes. That feels like a thing we can Definitely get behind, competent. right? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know. <laughs> and that describes Sousa to a T it as far as I'm concerned does. in this, it in this show. It absolutely does. Yes. Uh, that's what I love, too. He's got adaptive competence, right? You know, like mm-hmm. here he has this one thing, you know, like he's he's lost part of his leg or, you know, whatever that injury is that he's got. And he's got the cane. But it doesn't stop him. It doesn't take away his competence. His competence then adapts to it. And it and it show you know it like moves through the cane, so I kind of I love that I love that that positivity of that you know that it's it's not a loss it's just he's finding a different way to be competent so yeah I like that. All right, do you have anything else? Is there anything else that we didn't talk about that you wanted to talk about with Agent Carter's five through eight, the end of season one? Tell me about your Easter egg. Oh, okay, the Easter egg again. I didn't find it. It was something I stumbled across, but that um, when... No more self-deprecating. Bring the heat. All right. No, when Ivchenko <laughs> is in the prison cell, he's reading a book of, of Dr. Faustus. And that's his name in the... Did you did Well, you not okay. That? I take it back. They gave me two clues. Ooh. I didn't notice what book he was reading. Yeah. There's so much going on in that episode. I know, right? I swear. That's crazy. And the other the other part is that 
the character in the comics and this one for that matter doesn't really have anything thematically in common with Dr. Faustus. Yeah. There's no <laughs> right. the, trade. The, there's no sale to the devil. Sure, they no are bargain. the devil. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, I, you know, okay. Yeah. Pretty good. All right. So what, good. Did, what did you find? Did you find any Easter eggs? They're all in the notes. Oh. I, if I found them, they're up in the notes. Oh, there, I, there, weren't, there weren't as many this time around. Uh-huh. I think that um, we kind of came over the hump of the show and we're running towards the finish line. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So there was a little less time for, uh, you know. The very cleverly dropped. Yeah. We're, it's a funnel at the top, right? Yeah. And we're coming down to the moment when everything comes together. Right. And so I feel like, yeah, the big Easter egg reveal is, in fact, Ivchenko. Yes. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's pretty cool. You know, I mean, even though I didn't genuinely find it myself, I thought that that was pretty cool. It's <laughs> <laughs> pretty strong. I almost missed him entirely. Mm-hmm. So that's very close to a complete total victory yeah, for you. Yeah. Very right. close. <laughs> very close. Well, if I had if I had found it myself. But, but the more we go through and the more you teach me, like, about all of these comics and all of these things, like, one of these days, I'm going to, like, genuinely get, like, a really deep cut Easter egg. I feel like that's going to happen. I feel like you're going to start going, that's an Easter egg, isn't it? Exactly. Everything. <laughs> Be looking at every sign on the street, every newspaper headline, <laughs> everything. No, but you'll you'll start getting a feel for it. I yeah. feel like that's where it's going to be. Is like, that's a, I have no idea what it's in I reference to, but that's an Easter egg. I don't know what it is, but, but I'll bet egg. that's an Easter egg, right? <laughs> All right. So, Joshua, here we are at the end of the discussion. Tell me, out of these four episodes, what was your favorite part? My favorite part is when Dooley is about to get his heroic moment Mm -hmm. and he is standing there in the office. Everybody is freaking out. They don't know how they're going to save him. And you can tell that he's made some kind of decision, but he hasn't let anyone else in on it yet. Yeah. And he says, Tell him what? Tell him I'm sorry. I missed it. You? Promise me you'll get the son of a bitch who did this. Say it. We'll catch him. That a girl. And the thing that I love about this is he says that duly of all people. Yes. Says it directly to Peggy. Yep. He knows who's going to get this job done. Exactly. And it's not that he suddenly doesn't have any faith in Thompson. And it's not that he doesn't suddenly have no faith in Sousa. Mm -hmm. It's that he's like, well, this is my final wish. I want this thing done. Mm -hmm. And there is exactly one person standing in range of my voice that will get it done. And it's Peggy Carter. That's right. I love I that. love that. That's his redemptive moment for me because I absolutely like I just have no patience for this guy throughout the whole thing. Like he just seems dumb to me. Like and I just I can't handle a dumb character. I can handle an asshole. I hate dumb. That makes me nuts. Um but Dooley in that moment, you know, I feel like there is this redemptive moment for him like Mm -hmm. he's got a clarity right as he's about to sacrifice himself and also you know he sacrifices himself 
yeah. to save everybody for else. his people. Exactly, like that. That he's he's a good man. Like he's a tough guy. You know, when it comes down to it, he'll do the right thing. You know, um, so I mean, that made me appreciate him more. So it's one of these things where, like, you know, Dooley, I hated him the whole way through, and then in the last like thirty seconds, I'm like, all right, you got me. I, I'm I'm good now. <laughs> I think that he started Mm -hmm. to be redeemed for me a little bit when it became clear that his marital troubles were because his wife cheated on him. Yeah. Because I had up until that moment kind of been reading him as the kind of guy who would do that. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Or or he just married the job. Yeah. You know, it it didn't have to be another woman necessarily, but that that he was the core of his marital difficulties. And when we not to say that. You know, two to tango, blah, blah, blah. But he said he was across the world. You know, he was still overseas. Yeah. And and so I started to go, oh, there's a little more going on with Dooley mm-hmm. than I thought. And then for him to trust Suze's gut mm-hmm. and then for him to sacrifice himself right after, you know, putting the biggest stamp of approval. It's his final wish. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he gives it to Peggy. Yeah. Absolutely. Man, I had a little more like retroactive respect for Dooley after that. Yeah, no, that's the thing. It really does. It kind of like those last few moments for Dooley sort of reach back into the rest of Dooley and make him a little bit more bearable. But yeah. you spend eight episodes wondering how he got the job. Yeah. And in his last 10 seconds on screen, you're like, oh, oh okay. that's how. That's how. That's our guy. That makes sense. <laughs> Lonnie, tell me about your favorite part. All right. Well, you know, I got to say my favorite stuff is always Jarvis and Peggy and their relationship. I absolutely love them. But there's this moment in Ascend Air. What are you doing? A large portion of the women on this list are well-known actresses, models and socialites. Publicly established for several years, they can be disregarded. Well, I wouldn't dismiss her. You think Ginger Rogers is a Russian assassin? We should have seen her eyes when I escorted her from Mr. Stark's villa. The darkest gates to the abyss. So I love that moment with Jarvis. He's so funny. It's so cute. They're working together. They're trying to find, you know, the woman who um, who tricked uh, Howard and got into his vault. And uh, and it's just it's just adorable that whole sequence. And then like uh, you know, my second favorite part is like when all the women are slapping Jarvis. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> that whole montage of them yelling at Jarvis is really fun. How horribly uncomfortable he is through that whole thing. He's horribly uncomfortable. And I kind of headcanon that Peggy's like, well, you deserve every bit of this. You've betrayed me. Exactly. No, I really think that, that Peggy was like, all right. I mean, she was enjoying it, you know. The universe will balance these scales, Mr. Jarvis, on your cheek. Yes, they will. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Listen Up, A-Holes. We'll be back next time with our discussion of Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., episodes one through four of literally a million. Right, exactly. Season one, episodes one through four. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to join in, come find us on Twitter. I am at Lonnie Diane Rich, and Joshua is at Joshua Unruh, and the hashtag is Listen Up, A-Holes. Both Pulp Diction Productions and Chipperish Media are entirely supported by listeners like you. So please show your support by visiting our Patreon pages, or if you can't support us financially, leave us a great review on Apple Podcasts, because that will make it easier for more people to find us and join us all in the conversation. Absolutely. The links to Apple Podcasts and both our Patreon pages are easy to find right there in the show notes. Until next time, I don't need Agent Thompson's approval or the president's. I know my value.
That's deep. It's rich. Look at us. We're geniuses. I I'm cutting know. all of that where I pat ourselves on the back. 